So by way of review, the Israelites left Sinai, came all the way to the border of the Promised Land, refused to go in because there were giants in the land, and then turned back toward the wilderness. God said all their bodies were going to drop dead in the wilderness. And then the Lord commanded that a Sabbath breaker be killed. People got fed up with this strictness from Moses, though really it was the Lord. And they grumbled against uh, Moses and Aaron in number 16, saying, you have gone too far. <laughs> well, in number 16 and number 17, the Lord affirms and vindicates Moses and Aaron as his servants. And in fact, sends Aaron to function as a priest for this unholy assembly. And Aaron runs into the middle of this unholy assembly to intercede for them. This was in the end of Numbers chapter 16 when a plague broke out and almost 15,000 of the Israelites died. And then the Lord causes Aaron's staff to sprout and blossom and bear ripe almonds. And then after the Lord has sufficiently vindicated Moses and Aaron, He tells them to store up that staff in the Ark of the Covenant. Numbers 18 and Numbers 19 intervene before our passage this evening. And the reason we we skipped over them is because they're not narrative. They're part of the Old Covenant law, which we've already covered sufficiently in our Old Covenant series, looking systematically at Old Covenant law. So we pick up with the narrative in chapter 20. But it's important to understand that this is many years after the events of 16 and 17. And so there's been a long intervening period and the people have been wandering around for quite a while. And now they're back at Kadesh, which was where they had originally been at the time when they refused to go into the land. So here they are back at Kadesh. And some people say that there were lots of wells at Kadesh, so they couldn't have possibly been at Kadesh because there was no water. I think it's probably fair to say that in the day before automobiles, it's quite possible they were near Kadesh or something like that in a place where there was no water. And I don't think we have a great insurmountable difficulty with um, what the text lays before us, that they're back at Kadesh, but there's no water. And here the Israelites grumble again. We see in this passage the Lord saying to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. There are some possibilities here about why the Lord punishes Moses. What specifically was his sin? We know that he did something which displeased the Lord and failed to uphold the Lord as holy. What was it specifically? Well, some people think it was disbelief. In, in verse 10, they take Moses' words where he says, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? They take that statement in the sense of, Well, what are we supposed to do? 
bring water forth for you from this rock. But that seems unlikely because by this point, Moses has obviously seen the Lord bear his mighty right arm. And Moses has been generally faithful uh, in, in terms of he hasn't been at the forefront of the doubting and the disbelief of the Israelites. And though we've seen him struggle and waver, it's unlikely that at this point, Moses just can't conceive that the Lord will bring forth water from the rock. So that's probably pretty unlikely. Another hypothesis is that Moses is acting blasphemously by striking the rock since in Corinthians it talks about the rock in the wilderness being Christ. And so the by way of typology then if the rock is Christ and Moses strikes the rock then Moses strikes Christ. It's possible. I don't think it's the most compelling hypothesis. I think moving moving much more toward the point would be the these next hypotheses here. One being that Moses obeys very inexactly, if I can put it that way. In verse 11, it says, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. But what had the Lord commanded? In verse 8, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So there's a big difference between telling someone something and striking them, right? That, I think, is a lot more of a compelling hypothesis. We know that the Lord is very serious about the details of how He is to be obeyed. In fact, by this time, Aaron had buried his own sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were legitimate priests doing legitimate service in the ordained place, the tabernacle, worshiping the true God, Yahweh, and yet they did it in an inexact way in Leviticus chapter 10 and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. How did the Lord respond? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So I think it's very possible that Moses obeys very inexactly here, and so the Lord punishes him for this inexactitude. However, this fails to account for the the condemnation of Aaron as well as Moses. Unless it was a premeditated thing in which Moses consulted with Aaron and said, you know what, instead of telling this rock, let's strike it twice. Right? Unless that conversation happened, that would be Moses' issue and not Aaron's. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, etc., etc. Right? So even that, I think, is probably unlikely, though I'm not saying it wasn't a sin. I'm saying I don't think that was probably precisely what was the issue here. Another hypothesis is that Moses just got too angry and lost his temper. We read in Psalm 106, Verse 32. 
that they, that is the congregation of Israel, angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. Obviously, Moses' bitter spirit and rash speaking with his lips was a sin, based on this Psalm 106. Again, though, was it Aaron's sin? In Psalm 106, we see specifically Moses singled out here. But in Numbers 20, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because of this incident, you both, neither one of you, shall bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So again, I don't think that that's probably specifically what's in mind, though certainly that was a sin. Here's what I think is the most compelling reason that God holds Moses and Aaron accountable and says that they can't go in. I think that they basically put themselves in the place of God as if they were giving water to the Israelites. Well, it's unlikely that a conversation transpired in which Moses and Aaron conspired together to strike the rock twice. Well, it's unlikely that there was a conversation between them where Moses said, how about my spirit will get really bitter and I'll speak rashly. And Aaron said, yeah, 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 good idea, do that. Well, it's unlikely that those conversations transpired. It's very likely, as we know, that Moses and Aaron may well have entered into a kind of conversation with one another in which they said something like this. I'm so sick and tired of these complaining people. Yeah, me too. Right? And went down that line and then said, all right, well, we have to give them water from the rock again. Yeah, let's go give these people water from the rock. You could see very easily how a conversation like that could transpire. And so Moses and Aaron go and Moses says, after getting wrongly fired up by his conversation with Aaron, where they're both, they're both bitter and they're both angry and they're both frustrated, he comes and says what him and Aaron have talked about. Here now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Im implicitly, yes, we shall. And then Moses strikes the rock twice and out comes the water. So as one commentator put it, they forgot that they were just instruments of the Lord's provision. And they acted in this instance as if they were the providers of this water from the rock. They put themselves in the place of God. And we, what, do we, what do we know of the Lord? He says, my glory I will share with no other. Right? And so the, the leaders of Israel, in this case, Moses and Aaron, though again, frankly, their sins are pretty tame and pretty understandable, if I can say it that way without condoning it. After all of these years and all of this grumbling, finally they just get fed up. In fact, in this, in this passage, look at it again in Exodus 20 and verse 6. 
Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. So again, here they are again interceding for the people before this, right? And then the Lord tells them he's going to give them water from the rock and somewhere they go sideways, which we know we've been in conflicts before. We know that one, one night you can pray about it and go to bed with peace in your heart. And then the next morning you get up angry about it again. Right? So we, we, we can see compatibility between Moses and Aaron interceding for these people again. But then the next day they're like, you know what? Enough of this. Right? They finally get fed up. They finally get frustrated. They act as if they are in the place of God. And as if they are bearing the children of Israel on eagles' wings. Instead of Yahweh bearing the children of Israel on eagles' wings. They fail, therefore, to uphold the Lord as holy. And so the Lord brings His judgment down, not only on Moses, who was the spokesman and the one who actually struck the rock with inexactitude. But the Lord brings down His judgment on both Moses and Aaron because they were co-conspirators in this forgetting of the Lord and dishonoring of the Lord and acting as if they were the ones who out of Egypt called their sons. So, the leaders of the people as well as the people themselves of the first generation of those who came up out of Egypt are not allowed into the promised land. Miriam dies at the beginning of this chapter. We read that in verse 1. Aaron will die at the end of this chapter. And of course we know that Moses dies, though much later in the narrative, Moses dies before going into the promised land because of the events in this chapter. So Numbers chapter 20 records for us the death of Miriam, the death of Aaron, and the reason for the death of Moses. What we see here in this section of Scripture is exactly what Numbers chapter 20 and verse 13 says. The Lord, Yahweh, shows Himself holy. The Lord shows Himself holy. He shows that He is not just one of the leaders of Israel. Like there's Moses and Aaron and the Lord and you know this team working together. No, no, no. My glory I will share with no other. Though Moses and Aaron in a sense were the leaders of the people. Ultimately these were Yahweh's people. And He won't let anyone think otherwise. Though Moses and Aaron certainly were gracious and merciful falling on their faces over and over again and interceding for this undeserving people. It's not like there's this gracious bunch Moses and Aaron and the Lord. No. The Lord's grace exceeds and and undergirds and is the reason for supersedes and, and is to be exalted far above the grace of Moses and Aaron. Though 
Moses and Aaron's wrath is somewhat justified. I think it's fair to say that there was some grounds here for righteous anger. We see it mixed with sin. As Psalm 106 tells us that Moses' spirit became bitter and he spoke not in a measured and an appropriate way, but rashly. So we see the justice of Moses, if I can put it that way, mingled with sin and mingled with imperfection. Unlike the Lord's, which is in a class of its own. And so the Lord's leadership of this people, the Lord's grace, the Lord's justice, these things are not to be put in the same category as the leadership and the grace and the mercy of Moses and Aaron, but they are set apart in their own category, which is one of the meanings of holy, right? Not simply morally pure and morally blameless, but another, another aspect of the word holy is set apart. The Lord wants to be very clear about His set-apartness, His exaltation, not only over the common congregation of the people of Israel, but His set-apartness and exaltation even over Moses and Aaron and Miriam, the leaders of the people of Israel. So the Lord here shows Himself as holy. He magnifies His grace in this passage. Notice here, that he still gave water. You see in this passage, in verse 11, water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. You think Moses and Aaron are gracious to fall on their faces for this undeserving people? How about the Lord? The gap between Moses and Aaron and the rest of the congregation was fairly large in terms of their moral disposition and their relative devotion to the Lord. But the gap between the congregation and the Lord was that much greater. And yet here is the Lord condescending that. He lowers himself to provide abundant water for this congregation more than Moses and Aaron lowered themselves to intercede for this congregation. Here is the abundant grace of the Lord. Shown us in the abundance of the water that flowed. There was not a little trickle. There was not barely, barely enough. A portion designed to Keep them simply alive, but abundant water for themselves and for their livestock. This is a true historical account, and yet at the same time, it's sort of parabolic, if you will, for the way that the Lord's grace so often comes to us. Amidst the judgment of God, we constantly see God's grace in Scripture. <clears throat> Genesis 3 is an excellent example of this way that the Lord dispenses, finds a way to dispense justice and grace at the same time. He says to Adam and Eve, 
cursed are you, cursed are you, cursed are you. And yet, he also declares this proto-evangelion, this first gospel, that the seed of the woman should crush the serpent's head. And so in, in, in Numbers 20, the Lord upholds his justice and shows himself holy, and yet at the same time finds a way to pour out abundant grace. In Genesis 3, we see the ultimate example of this, where the Lord curses this world and Adam's, even this inanimate world, as well as Adam's race, mankind, for the sins of our first father. And yet, even as he shows himself holy in Genesis 3, there is this abundant water flowing that the seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. We see God's justice in the punishment of Moses and Aaron, and God's justice in Genesis 3 in the curse. But we see also God's abundant grace flowing. Note that Moses' sin and Aaron's sin seems relatively understandable and relatively excusable on a, rel on a relative scale, right? That we could understand how such a thing would happen. If we're honest, we've probably had thoughts like that even about the events in Genesis. That here's, here's Adam and Eve in the garden and, well, what harm could it be to have one little fruit? Right? And what an overreaction of God to curse mankind and to curse this earth. What an overreaction of God after all that Moses and, has, and Aaron have put up with at the hands of this rebellious people, not to let them enter the promised land. Know well, not only the mercy of God, but the justice of God demonstrated in this passage. God shows us very clearly that He's not going to give us an inch let alone let us take a mile. That God is of purer eyes than to behold evil, even in the smallest degree. If we think that Moses and Aaron's sin here is small, or if we think that Adam's sin in Genesis 3 was small, it just shows what a poor perception we have of the heinousness of sin. God magnifies His justice and His grace in this passage as He does throughout Scripture and most ultimately in the cursing of this world and in the redemption of this world because of the first Adam and of the second Adam respectively. God shows Himself as holy. If there's... If we were to sum up what God wants us to know about Him from the Bible. We could certainly do a lot worse 
than summing it up as he is just and he is gracious. Right? That's probably a pretty decent summary. God is a just God. Doesn't let anyone get away with sin. But God is a gracious God. And he makes a way for sin to be atoned for and for sinners to be reconciled to him. If we were to just put it in a nutshell, that's what we see all through Scripture. That's what we see here in Numbers 20. God shows himself holy. Even the holiest person in Israel, who at least ceremonially we'd have to say was the high priest, right? Even the most commendable, morally commendable person in Israel who if we're not talking ceremonially, we might say Moses, right? Sure, he's had his sin, but I don't think we have a a better, more commendable example in Israel up to this point. Even the holiest men in Israel, Moses and Aaron, are not holy enough to pass muster before God's exactitude. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is not going into the promised land. The wages of sin is death. And yet, at the same time, there is abundant grace. The water flows abundantly. The gift of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In view of all this, don't think that you are good enough for God. Don't think that you can be like Moses and somehow thereby enter the promised land because Moses didn't enter the promised land. Don't think that you can be like Aaron and somehow enter the promised land. Because Aaron didn't enter the promised land. The Lord's justice is on full display in this passage. And the seriousness of sin is on full display in this passage. But understand that God is willing to be gracious to sinners. God is willing to make water flow. Make water flow abundantly in and through Christ Jesus. As we read in, read in Corinthians, which I alluded to earlier in the sermon, the rock typifies and foreshadows Christ from whom abundant grace comes to us. And so the message of this passage isn't be like Moses, be like Aaron, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do a good job. The message of this passage is we need grace. We are undeserving people who need to see the grace of Yahweh and be grateful and be thankful for that. So ultimately, make sure you got that sorted out. Your salvation will not come to you by being even the best person in the congregation. That's not gonna happen. But God is a gracious God who makes water flow freely for sinners. Understand that. Make sure you got the salvation issue sorted out. Beyond that, even as a believer, fear God. Beware of God's temporal judgments. 
You, who here thinks that Moses is in hell? Not me. But you see, Moses, Moses was on the receiving end of a temporal judgment. Moses didn't get to go into Canaan. Right? How many people here think Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5 are in hell? I don't think so. Personally. I don't think we have I don't think we have any reason or any warrant to assume that Ananias and Sapphira are lost. That when they were struck down temporally that they went to hell. I don't believe we have any reason to think that. I think that the early church was probably at least as careful as CRBC in terms of screening potential new members and that Ananias and Sapphira probably had a pretty good grasp on the gospel and probably had a credible profession of faith and probably were trusting in Christ Jesus and yet they sinned and the Lord killed them. I'm not saying that everyone that dies what we would call prematurely was struck down by God because of a specific sin in their life. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm also not suggesting that no one is. It may be that the Lord will will strike you down and not let you see your children grow up or your grandkids grow up because of a specific sin in your life. It may be that the Lord will send cancer into your life. It may be that the Lord will cause you to be in a car accident or the Lord will cause a financial downturn. You recognize that though you are saved, it doesn't mean that you're never going to experience any discipline for your sin. That the Lord is not going to show Himself holy in your life. So get the salvation issue sorted out, but also fear God and recognize that the Lord who showed himself holy in Numbers chapter 20 is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he will protect his reputation as he sees fit. Therefore, obey circumspectly and precisely. Make it your ambition to do exactly what the Lord tells you. To obey with exactitude rather than to obey with inexactitude as Moses did here in this passage. Don't strike the rock if the Lord says to speak to the rock. Think carefully about how the Lord would have you live and try to obey as precisely as you can. Some people, when you begin talking about how you ought to work out one matter of obedience or another says, well, don't be legalistic. But there's nothing legalistic about trying to obey precisely and trying to obey carefully and trying to obey with exactitude. You understand that you're saved by grace. You understand that you need the help of the Holy Spirit to obey. You understand that you're not just pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, but God's grace is at work in you to conform you to the image of His Son. But you should also understand that God wants you to obey with exactitude. And there's nothing that's in disharmony with the gospel about trying to obey God 
with exactitude. Moreover, rule over your emotions, which can bring you into an ex into a situation in which you act in a way that is inconsistent with your character, your general character in a moment, and yet has lasting consequences. Consider Moses in this passage. Consider his, his track record, which was generally good. Moses was a pretty good, pretty obedient, pretty faithful guy. We've seen his sin at various times as we've gone through the narrative. No, no desire to whitewash, plaster over his obvious sins and shortcomings at various points in the narrative. But time and time again, he acts actually in a very commendable way. We see his selflessness and his genuine love for the people of Israel as well as for the glory of God manifest time and time again as he continually intercedes for them. But in this particular instance, his emotions got the better of him and he acted in a way which was contrary to the general tenor of his character. And it was something which had significant, lasting consequences. So as you think about obeying the Lord carefully, circumspectly and precisely, a subset of that, which I would urge you to consider, would be to make sure you don't get carried away in a particular instance, as Moses got carried away here. As I said earlier in the, the sermon, his actions here are pretty understandable from a human perspective. Likewise, you, your emotions may run, with, run away with you in a way that is pretty understandable to the other church members, to your friends and to your family members, and yet which may be a serious offense in God's eyes and which may have lasting consequences in terms of how the Lord deals with you from that point forward. All of this is not rocket science. The Lord shows Himself holy in this passage. And in the New Covenant, the Lord hasn't changed to be less than holy or something like that. So as Solomon said many years later in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. We all know from experience that this is not, though this is not rocket science, it's easier said than done. Our sin is the problem. Thank God not only for the glorious justice, but also the glorious grace, which we see in this passage and in all of Scripture, which unfolds throughout redemptive history and comes to culmination ultimately in the person and work of Jesus, where God both condemns sin and shows forth the glory of His justice, and yet at the same time and in the same action, is making abundant water flow 
and showing forth the glory of His grace.